Khan Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. Hello and welcome to the Mishkan Academy Digital Sessions podcast. I'm Antonia Felix, a legal director in the family department at Mishkan Dorea, and I'm joined by my colleague, Marielle Stringer-Fellow, an associate in the Private Wealth Disputes team. This is the second podcast in our series focusing on vulnerable clients and mental capacity. In this episode, we're focusing on vulnerable parties and witnesses. What do we mean by vulnerable? What happens if a vulnerable person is a party to litigation? And how are vulnerable parties and witnesses supported during litigation? And what can the system do better? So moving into the family court and who is vulnerable, before I start talking about who is vulnerable in the court, I would say that as family solicitors, when we have a client who we believe is vulnerable, whether or not there'll be litigation, we put measures in place to protect them as our client. And then obviously, if there's litigation, how the court view vulnerable clients is not specifically defined, but it can include those with a learning difficulty, a person suffering from mental ill health, or a person with physical disability, which impacts on their ability to communicate effectively. This also includes those parties who don't speak English as a first language or someone who has suffered domestic abuse. So practice direction three of the family procedure rules sets out the factors the court has to consider when looking at vulnerability. And it is very broad. This is really because it can be drastically different for each case and each person. And practice direction three is being reconsidered so that it falls in line with the Domestic Abuse Act 2021. The family procedure rules state that the court must deal with cases justly having regard to any welfare issues involved. And I think the important thing for family practitioners is to very early on recognise and identify when there may be a vulnerable party in litigation so that the court can be notified and adjustments can be made so that all parties receive a fair hearing and feel that they're being supported. Children are always considered as vulnerable because of their age and guidance and case law governs when a child should attend court or give evidence in proceedings, and if so, how they'll be supported. There's been a huge increase in number of litigants in person in private family proceedings, and because of that, even more support is required by the court. And that has been difficult, actually, because there's just not enough staff at court, and there's a lot of pressure on the system. But this is an issue that is being addressed because of the numbers increasing. That's really interesting. So is everyone with a disability automatically labelled as vulnerable? No, they won't be. And it's case by case. And also some people don't want to be regarded as vulnerable. So you have to be very careful how you deal with that. And someone who might look like they aren't vulnerable actually could be lacking in confidence and may require assistance. And some clients we find, for example, in Children Act cases, if they're a parent and they've got a history of mental illness or anything else that might crop up, well, their first fear is they might have their child taken away from them if they're just simply honest about their history. So it is very key to kind of get an understanding of the history and how to deal with it so that people aren't embarrassed or ashamed of their vulnerabilities. What happens in family proceedings if there is a vulnerable party? So the court would appoint an intermediary who do a detailed assessment of what's required on behalf of the court. And they look at other expert reports, such as medical assessments. The report makes recommendations to the court for the special measures to be used during the hearing and also advise how the judge and the legal teams should communicate with the individual to ensure that the vulnerable person 
is able to give the best evidence to the family court that they can. And obviously on a practical level as well as family lawyers, we support our clients in addition to how the court do. For example, some clients obviously find court quite overwhelming and there's a loud tannoy that goes off all day introducing other cases. So we sometimes sit in cafes around the corner from the court. We've drawn diagrams for clients so they know where they're going to be sitting. We've done long lists of what to expect and who talks. We help them have witness training so they know how to act in a court environment. And there's also other things available. So if, if a client is dyslexic, there's tools available where the text can be put in such a way that they find it easier to read. I've also had a client who has dyscalculia, so she can't read numbers in number form. So we had to make sure they were always in word form and we had to notify the court of that. I've also had clients with therapists either on the phone or up the road in a cafe just waiting in case they were needed, even if they weren't, just to provide that extra level of support. And the other thing that I tend to do is try to pre-book a room at court because then you can sit in that room and come and go during the day rather than being in the public waiting area, which is you know, not confidential and actually puts pressure on vulnerable clients. And it's just not appropriate at all. And for lawyers, there's also a toolkit by the Advocates Gateway Service, which has recently been updated, which is very helpful. And the court also, with their special measures, may put some of these things in place, like looking into the timing and management of breaks, helping with how written information is provided to the court and from the clients and the legal teams. Screens are used a lot in cases where there's been domestic abuse. And often they're given the option of obviously turning their camera off to make them feel safer. And another step, which if there's alleged abuse and there's a litigant in person, there's obviously a difficulty with a litigant in person being cross-examined. And so the judge requires the questions to be given to him or her a week in advance. And then the judge will ask the questions on behalf of the litigant in person, which is obviously good because it protects that person, but actually makes the judge the questioner and the arbiter of fact. So that's going to have to be something that's looked into, which it is at the moment. And the court looking into directing that an advocate be appointed to do the cross-examination. So the court will look very broadly at what is required. And there's obviously always going to have to be improvements, but it is definitely getting better. Yeah, that sounds incredibly practical as well, which, which is just not the case in the civil court. I think it's fair to say that we are light years behind the family courts and the criminal courts who have had to deal with these issues for, well, probably we've all had to deal with them for the same amount of time, but at least they've been a lot more alive to them. So the civil court, there is a real difference in the sort of sophistication, I suppose, of what guidance there is available. In fact, we do complain a bit about the difference and the slightly slow approach there has been. But in the last year, there has been huge progress from our perspective. The Civil Justice Council issued a report last February, which came up with a number of recommendations to facilitate the reform of the civil courts and, and their approach to vulnerable parties and witnesses. And these led to an amendment to the overriding objective in the civil procedure rules, which for those who aren't legally qualified, is kind of like the guiding principle really of the court system and, and sets out in very high level terms what we should all be focusing on, which is about proportionality and just administration of justice and being fair and cooperation. But the difference now is that it has been amended to reflect that this requires a focus on parties being enabled to participate fully 
with witnesses being able to give their best evidence, which is all very much geared towards engaging with issues around vulnerability. And as you've said, Antonia, there are so many ways that you can help parties to actually engage properly, regardless of their type of vulnerability or perhaps disability. That has not been a priority for the civil courts before now. Which is quite surprising, really. Well, it's 2021. I mean, (laughs) yes, it's definitely been very slow. But at least there has been some progress with this amendment. So the amendment's not just to the overriding objective, it's, it's also reflected in a lot more detail in a new practice direction, 1A, which sets out in, again, still quite high level terms, but at least in some more detail, the factors that should be taken into account, the variety of ways in which a party or a witness could be considered to be vulnerable, which do seem to be broadly consistent with the family court's approach as well. But the the key shift, I think, is that it puts the onus on the court and the parties to consider at an early stage, the earliest possible stage, really, how best to facilitate someone's participation, which, as I said, we we haven't had that guidance before. It, It very much used to be the case that you could raise it as an issue with the court and it was totally down to whichever judge or master was hearing a matter to put into practice what you were asking of them. And that was quite often the case where they didn't have the resources to actually do that. So this is really useful guidance. It's probably a bit late. And I hope that in years to come, we'll see a much more practical reality, such as you've just outlined in the family courts, with these measures and the tools that you've mentioned. But that's the sort of biggest progress that we've made in years. So it feels like there is common ground between us, but also there's a difference between vulnerable parties and not having the mental capacity to litigate. Yeah, I think that's true. The vulnerable parties, as you've just described, can be all manner of vulnerabilities. Whereas just because you are considered vulnerable does not mean that you do not have capacity of any kind. And especially capacity to litigate is specific. As I know was talked about earlier in this series of podcasts, capacity is a specific test based on the Mental Capacity Act with case law there to nuance and assist. And capacity to litigate is, again, a specific sort of subset of that test. So just because someone is vulnerable does not mean that they do not have mental capacity. Picking up on a point I think made in the first podcast, we as solicitors always have to ensure that our clients have capacity to instruct us. So that's for legal work in general. And when it comes to litigation, this means the client has to have capacity to litigate. So it can be very specific. So with all of these decisions, the level of capacity required will be determined by the complexity of the litigation itself. As I mentioned, the Mental Capacity Act test applies here where assisted by the common law. So someone could have capacity to litigate a simple dispute, but not a complex one. And Whilst they could have subject matter capacity, so they can make specific decisions during the course of the litigation, they need to be able to make decisions for the entirety of the litigation in order to have capacity to litigate. So what are the consequences if we as solicitors are informed that our client has capacity issues? Well, it's very difficult for us. We effectively have to stop taking instructions until the issue has been bottomed out. So the priority at that stage would then be to obtain the client's consent for medical evidence to be obtained as to their capacity. 
the consent can be quite awkward. It's a difficult conversation to have with anyone to discuss whether or not they have mental capacity. I think the best way that we can approach it is to say, well, if the report comes back and confirms you do have capacity, it's always helpful to have that kind of medical evidence. If it comes back and reveals there are some issues, then we need to know that in order to protect you and act in your best interests. And also, as we'll come on to, that evidence is needed for proceedings. So we would really be pushing quickly to get a medical report. And it's really important for that report that the expert you instruct has incredibly clear instructions as to the test that they need to apply. As we've discussed, and I know the previous podcast went into, capacity is quite a broad spectrum. And a lot of experts are experts in testamentary capacity or a different kind of mental capacity. Whereas the test here is capacity to litigate, which means you need to be also explaining in simple terms, but enough that the expert understands what the dispute is actually about. So can the client make decisions that they need to make in the context of this specific dispute? So it is, it is quite specific. It does require careful instructions, which I think is, is something we've definitely learned over the years. We often find in our litigation that our client will say that the other party to litigation is their word nuts or you shouldn't believe anything they say. And there's obviously then confusion between them thinking that, but with actually that person's capacity to litigate. So there's a bit of advice that often needs to be given there. But if there's litigation already proceeding and then you think that your client's lost capacity to litigate, what do you do then? Yeah, well, it does happen. It's thankfully quite rare. But if someone has started litigation and then loses their capacity to litigate, they will need a litigation friend appointed pretty quickly. Effectively, once someone lacks capacity to continue to conduct proceedings, none of the parties to those proceedings can take a further step without permission of the court. And the court is not going to give their permission until the protected party, which is what we call the person who's lost capacity, has a litigation friend. So it really brings everything to a standstill until the litigation friend is in place, or, or at least until the medical evidence is obtained, ruling out the need for one. And what is the test for capacity to litigate? As mentioned, it's really virtually the same as the test for any other transaction. Fundamentally, it comes down to looking at the Mental Capacity Act. The person has to be capable of understanding information relevant to the litigation. They have to be capable of retaining the information, evaluating it and communicating a decision. Now, naturally, that's sometimes a lot harder depending on how complicated the litigation is and the decision is. There is a lot of case law on this that sort of sets out key issues and factors for the court to be aware of, for the parties to be aware of. There is a presumption that someone of adult age has the mental capacity to manage their affairs. And, you know, in the scenario you've mentioned of the other side alleging that someone has lost capacity, however they put it, the burden is on the party alleging that the other side does not have capacity to prove it, which is quite difficult where you require consent to get a medical report. But it does happen. So the test, as I've sort of mentioned, is, is really issue specific. It depends on the complexity of what decision needs to be made. And I think it's important to note that just because someone doesn't have capacity in respect of a particular transaction, so say it's accepted that they don't have capacity to make 
financial investment decisions, it does not mean they do not have capacity to conduct this litigation. So it is really carefully considered. And the court is not quick to decide someone does not have capacity to litigate. It is your right to conduct litigation as an adult in England and Wales. So they're very careful about taking that away. So what do parties have to be able to understand to have capacity to litigate? It's a really good question. We're not saying that people have to be lawyers, you know, and I'm sure there are clients that we advise that do not fully understand the legal aspects of everything we say. That is our job to assist them. So they don't have to understand all the details of the law. They have to be able to understand with a proper explanation from their legal advisors or from experts, the matters on which their consent or decision is necessary in the course of the proceedings. So that's really the crux of it. And and that test applies to the proceedings as a whole, so not just to a particular step. And I know that some clients think that because they've got a power of attorney in place, that that is a way of addressing this. But that's not always the case, is it? No, that's right. Unfortunately not. And we do see this often. And often, of course, by the time a power of attorney is actually in use, it means that the donor of that power has lost capacity. So it means that you can't go back and change the terms of that power of attorney. It's too late to do that. So it is important for people to be aware of of the difference between a power of attorney and a litigation friend. A power of attorney The biggest issue is that you cannot delegate actions of a personal nature by a power of attorney. So the case law to date sort of sets out in detail that something like, for instance, filing an affidavit, verifying a list of documents. So one of the cases on this subject, the affidavit was sworn by the uh, defendant's wife to whom he had granted a power of attorney. But it was held that a party cannot do by an attorney some act the competency to do which arises by virtue of a duty of a personal nature. So I think the key bit to remember in that context is that an affidavit, and especially an affidavit in context of disclosure, requires a personal statement of truth. You cannot delegate that by way of an attorney. So when we're looking at lasting powers of attorney, which is the sort of current form of powers of attorney, they used to be called enduring, but now you've got two types. You've got health and welfare, LPAs, and property and affairs, LPAs. So an attorney acting under an LPA or a deputy, who has generally been appointed by the court, has no automatic right to act as a litigation friend, which is, again, really important for people to be aware of. If there is nothing expressly written in the LPA that prevents the attorney from acting as the donor's litigation friend, they can in principle apply to be appointed as such. But just because you have an LPA does not mean you know you suddenly get these, these rights to act as a litigation friend. Appointment of anyone as a litigation friend can be done by order of the court or by following the usual procedure outside of the court rules. But I think the takeaway really about the powers of attorney is that if you have one in place or you sort of have written one and executed it, you need to be carefully reviewing it to see what powers it actually gives and whether it does say anything about conducting litigation. So do you need to go to court to get a litigation friend appointed? Not necessarily. There are certain circumstances where you do, and there is a very specific procedure outlined in Civil Procedure Rule 21. So generally where a party to the proceedings 
other than the protected party, so the person who's alleged to have lost capacity, seeks to have a litigation friend appointed, they need to apply to court, or if an existing litigation friend is to be replaced. So the application is sort of very procedural. It needs to be supported by evidence. It has to be filed as soon as possible in the proceedings. As I mentioned, everything kind of grinds to a halt until there is a litigation friend, or especially if you make allegations that the other party's lost capacity, you need to be acting quite quickly to try and prove it. So the key aspect that the court and all of the parties will be looking at is whether or not the person being proposed as a litigation friend has an adverse interest to that of the protected party. You don't have to be a lawyer to be a litigation friend. You just can't have any sort of real conflict of interests between you and the protected party you are acting on behalf of. Another key issue for someone to consider if they are considering being a litigation friend is that if the protected party is a claimant, the litigation friend has to undertake to pay any costs which the party might be ordered to pay in relation to the proceedings. Now, this is subject to a, a bunch of caveats, but that is a pretty big exposure for them. So, so something really important to bear in mind. So if you don't go to court, you can go through another process whereby you serve a certificate of suitability. Again, this is a very specific process. You have to file evidence of the protected party not having capacity to conduct the proceedings, as discussed. You, again, have to confirm that you don't have any adverse interest to the protected party. And you have to also confirm that you can fairly and competently conduct the proceedings. Again, it doesn't mean you have to be a lawyer. You can instruct lawyers, but it can get very complicated in terms of who is paying the costs of all of this, especially if the person you are representing has lost capacity. So you can do that without court. But again, I would always say that for considering either process, really legal advice is needed. It can be complicated. It can be drawn out. There are different interests at play that all need to be considered. So we do, we do advise often on litigation friend appointments. And really, if, if no one is able to step forward to be a litigation friend, which can happen, then the official solicitor has to step in. But that's really the sort of last case scenario. Yeah, because you probably have the same issues that we have in the family court, which is it's buckling under the pressure and just the waiting lists are just so long. Exactly. And especially if there is any question over their costs being paid, which there is, especially if there's no one else to step forward as litigation friend. Generally, you have a situation where there's no money. Unfortunately, that does seem to go hand in hand. And so the official solicitor will not agree to act if they can see there's no chance of them being reimbursed. So I think the key for us before we finish is to take advice on all aspects <laughs> of um, litigation when it comes to vulnerable parties and capacity to litigate. And we thought before we finish, we would just reflect on the last year, well, 18 months of COVID-19. And in many ways, it's delayed anything that the court can do because there's lack of funding and less people working. But in many other ways, it's accelerated people's thinking of how to get around issues such as vulnerability. And one thing the Ministry of Justice has done, which is a positive thing, is to make £200,000 available for the purchase of screens for use in family proceedings this year. So that's positive. There are also negatives, one of them being that vulnerable witnesses have had to be in court at home. And in Children Act proceedings, that's not ideal if they're vulnerable and their children are at home because they were homeschooling 
and all the other party is there as well. And so it has created huge difficulties for people in litigation. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting 18 months. I mean, I think, as you said, the success of remote technology can be mixed, but we've definitely seen the civil court has been really pushed to be creative. And I think that has actually made so much more progress in the last 18 months than the last sort of 10 years in some ways. And remote hearings have been helpful to a lot of those who would otherwise find traveling in and physically attending them more challenging. Similarly, I know both teams have had a lot of remote mediations, which has been quite interesting to see. It's sort of, even if you don't consider yourself vulnerable, mediation and and court, of course, can be extremely stressful and very triggering for people to be in the same place physically. So I think the emergence of e-mediations, remote mediations, we're doing a hybrid mediation at the moment, you know, with some people in an office, some people at home, has really opened up lots of different ways of people feeling perhaps more comfortable in that space. Yeah, that's exactly the same for us. Great. Well, I think we can definitely say, as is apparent from this, and I'm sure from the rest of the series, there is no one size fits all on the issues of capacity or vulnerability. So for now, I think we'll wrap up there. I'd like to say thank you to Antonia for joining me for this Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions podcast. I'm Marielle, and I hope you found our series on vulnerable clients and mental capacity interesting. The Digital Sessions are a series of online events, videos and podcasts, all available at mishcon.com. If you have any questions you'd like answered or suggestions of what you'd like us to cover, do let us know at digitalsessions at mishcon.com. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com.